They're cutting out. Can you repeat that? Go for production. Go for production. I said go for production. Production. That's right. You're listening to a podcast about TV and film production. Join us as we converse with industry leaders and gain insight into their strategies, their systems, and best practices in bringing a script to life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Brendan Riley. Welcome to another episode of Go For Production, where it's my job to deconstruct and demystify the production process in both film and TV. We'll talk about strategies, systems, and tools the pros use so you can be inspired to move forward in your filmmaking journey. Today's guest is Seth Edelstein. Seth started out in the film world as a production assistant and then got into the DGA training program in the 90s. He went on to work as a second second AD, second AD, first AD, and now is working as a unit production manager. Some of Seth's credits include Nightcrawler, Wire Liar, Dodgeball, Speed, Beethoven Second, Better Call Saul, American Crime Story, The Mentalist, Without a Trace. These are just a few of them. Anything I missed, Seth? Lots of days and nights in the cold and in the rain that added up to some sore feet, some sore backs, and a couple other credits. I mean, you you had too many credits. I couldn't list them all. So, But you, you've worked on a lot of TV, right? I have. I, I started out doing uh, PA work and infomercials and commercials, moved into the training program and did both TV and film for a number of years, and the last 15 years have been all TV. So um, growing up, what, what got you inspired to tackle film? You know, I didn't want to work for a living. I wanted to play, and working on set seemed like the closest thing to having fun rather than having to um, do something that felt like it was going to be a grind. So when I took a film class in my freshman year of college, I found something that really excited me, and I wanted to pursue that rather than um, working in the office of buying and contracting. <laughs> do you find yourself actualizing that today? Do you find yourself playing today? <laughs> there are days when it feels like it. No, now working as a production manager, I actually engage in a lot of buying and contracting. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, you, you have a pretty cool job. You're, we're at Sony Studios today um, in the lot. And um, what show are you working on right now? So I'm in the process of wrapping a show called Euphoria that uh, will be on HBO beginning in June of 2019. Um, and yeah, I've been very blessed by both the kind of experience that I've had and the variety and the opportunities. I've been um, able to sort of exercise that uh, part of me that wanted to go on an adventure every day and do something different. So I haven't been sitting in the same office year after year or even month after month. Um, most of my career I've been able to travel and to see places and things that I wouldn't necessarily have gotten to see unless I was part of a production. That's interesting. So w when you think about this idea of, of play, I, w I just want to talk about that for a second because I think it's interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're managing books you're you're hiring people it's very business oriented but um do you find joy in doing that most of the time 
and there are days that you know just feel like a grind and feel like a job that I'm sure everybody would experience both because of the possibility that you are doing something that you don't enjoy in that particular moment and because of the possibility that you're doing something that feels repetitious to something that you've done before um but like most parts of a production there's a lot of variety and it depends on the material you're working on it depends on the people you're working with and every situation brings those ingredients together in a different way that makes it unique and makes it a challenge of its own you know i remember growing up taking math and i hated math and then today i'm doing accounting for movies <laughs> and somehow we get drawn into the opportunities to learn the things that we most need to learn right and but i'm actually enjoying that type of math you know and it's it's funny how it, the tables have turned um i, I want to talk about um one thing that is important um in this this world of tv and film is kind of this idea of building the right team um, finding the right people to work with, hiring crew. Um, when, when you're when you're about to embark on a new journey, let, let's say Better Call Saul. Wh where did you, where did you shoot that? Better Call Saul uh, shoots in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, the group that makes it is an amazingly talented and dedicated crew. Um, most of them have been part of that family, going back to Breaking Bad. So when I joined that group, um, it was me coming in as an outsider and me being the new person where most of them had rolled over from year to year. And, you know, it's great when you get to put together a group from the ground up. It can also be great when you can step into a situation where the crew is well qualified and used to working together and has the experience to anticipate how the show will run and how to work together in a way that makes it efficient. For um, is there a show that you've had to build from the ground up that um, was very challenging? Do you have any stories that you might? You know, it seems like um, when you know, I'm I'm never doing that by myself. Mm -hmm. As as a production manager, I'd be doing it with the line producer. Um, as a person who wants to be a line producer I'll be doing it with a production manager or with the supervisor that I might be working with and you try to take the best elements of the experience that you've had in the past the best people you've worked with in the past um, and reach out to them and see who might be available and bring together a group that hopefully um, can be cohesive and develop its own work style that is efficient and quick and communicative and healthy um, and you know you you are always challenged by whether or not the people that you like and know are available whether or not they might be interested in the project you're working on and whether or not um, the people that they would bring with them will be of a similar attitude and ethic to the ones that they bring so you know you you do the best you can to put to put together a crew with a similar philosophy to your own and to the people that you appreciate working with. And from that, um, there's a certain element of control that you exercise. After that, it becomes a little bit of the cards falling where they may and then having to deal with whatever comes out of that. So l let's say that you, you have to hire 100 people, right, for your crew. 
some people may not understand your job entirely. So out of those 100 people, how many people would you actually end up hiring? So in my position, I'd probably be involved in hiring 10 of them. Mm-hmm. You know, the the department heads. Right. And then the department heads will get to choose the people that they bring in to work under them or the people that come in to support them. And it's important to give those department heads the opportunity to choose their own people and to set up the work system within their department that works for them. Um, when you hire someone, you want to make the opportunity for them to succeed as strong as possible. And part of that is allowing them to do the job in the way that they like to do it as long as it can happen within the policies of the company and within the philosophy for the show that you're trying to establish. So I'm, I'm very much a proponent f- of the, you know, find the best person that you can and then let them run philosophy mm-hmm. up until the point that you discover that there's a problem, at which point then you can step in and try to help or try to get involved in the details. But un- unless there's a problem, you want to give people the the space to do the best job they can. Yeah, so they're not feel like they're micromanaged in in that way, I guess. Not neither micromanaged or um overseen in a way that makes them feel that they're not appreciated. People will feel appreciated and will feel dedicated and will do the best job that they can because they come with the best of intentions. Nobody makes it to um a a level of success in this business without having both the skills and the dedication to do it and people can become demoralized when they don't feel that they are trusted or they don't feel invested in the project and the producing team including the production manager the line producer the ad's are one of the two factors that can most quickly affect a person's um, sense of morale as they're going through their daily work. The other one, of course, being the director. Right. So has this ever backfired on you in terms of trusting department heads too much, maybe, where you kind of had a gut feeling that you should have had m- be more hands-on? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Unfortunately, it has. But, you know, you you also learn from those mistakes so that you can, you know, try to make a more uh, appropriate decision the next time. And when that does happen, then you have to decide what the best way to deal with that situation is. And if it is making a change or if it is um, going to be best for the show to adjust your own work methodology or your own expectations so that you can make it from from wherever you are to the end of the season. When it comes to um, crewing up the production department, <coughs> is there anything specific that you're looking for um, in terms of um, that team? Because they work closely with you, like your your accountants, your supervisors, your coordinators. What, what do you? How how are you finding these people? And and um, if you haven't already worked with them before, the the biggest thing I believe is to find out what people's attitudes are. Mm-hmm. Most people that are going to be considered for jobs on the kinds of shows that I've been lucky enough to work on are people who are going to be well qualified and people who have experience coming in. And if you accept that that is um, going to bring only people who have the job set or the skill set to, to perform the job, 
then it becomes a question of what their attitudes are like and what their personality is like and how well that'll mesh with the tone that you're trying to set for the show. I'm personally um, of the opinion that when you have a production um, system that's set up with people that are optimistic and people that are positive about what they're doing, with people who have a yes-we-can attitude, that it makes the day go by a lot faster. And I'd rather surround uh, myself and the creative team on the shows that I'm on with a positive attitude than anything else. That's good. Um, thinking about that, I, I guess one question that I have um, in terms of finding those people, though, is it mostly referrals or do you you look through cold resumes? Is It, it can be both. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I will admit that I'm more likely to consider a candidate who has been recommended by someone that I know and trust already right. than a candidate who's just come in on paper. Um, but the biggest and most important part of that choice will be when I get to meet that person and get a sense of their um, presence and their um, bearing and the way they carry themselves, the way that they introduce themselves, the way that they make eye contact or don't, the way that they um, wear sunglasses through the entire interview so that you can't see <laughs> their eyes. Or Does that really happen? Yeah, yeah, that has. Um, and and And... That moment that you spend with someone can give you a taste of what it'll feel like to stand next to them for 14 hours a day for the next six months. Is that a person you want to engage with on a regular basis, or is that going to feel like a positive or negative benefit to you? It's almost like, you know, when you hire somebody at a at a non-film job, you can see them from nine to five, but in the film world, you're seeing them a lot longer. So it's almost like you're hiring family. It, it can feel like that. And it's unfortunate that we're all at will employees. The companies can let any of us go with very little notice and with very little explanation. So in theory, we're day playing. They can let us go. We as producers or production managers or um, as managers can influence the employment of other people and could effectively make changes midstream sometimes. But you are putting together a group. There is an emotional balance to it. There is a um, social network that develops on the set and that becomes part of the not just the experience of making the product, but the flow of making it that affects how efficient the company is. And if you make changes midstream, it can affect that process. It can affect the, the financial and scheduling aspects of the show in ways that you have to take into account. Yeah, there's a lot of weight to that, that decision, right? You can't take it pretty lightly, especially if it's a six-month show. Right, and sometimes it makes sense to make a change, and sometimes it doesn't. I, I have um, been on both sides of that decision and sometimes have um, felt that we did the right thing and sometimes have felt that we maybe didn't do the right thing. But you take each of those experiences and you learn from it. You, so I, a, a producer that I worked for once said um, something that I thought was quite astute when I was complaining to him about a few crew members that I thought were harming the show. And he said, at this point, we're midway through the season. We play with the team that we have. We use them the best way that we can. 
as managers, we figure out when to put them on the field and when not to, um, to, to make the most of the opportunities that we have. And then we get to retool next season. He thought of the production hiring process like you were putting together your athletic team for the next season and you did the best to go as far with that team as you could for the season that you had them. And then you could retool again. That's a good analogy. Um, I want to ask a hypothetical. Let's say somebody out there is listening to this podcast and they are in the world trying to get hired on their next TV show or movie. What do you, what advice do you give them to, if they, they don't know anybody in that world or in that, on that show is, is, um, are they, does that email ever work that the film, whatever that film is at (laughs) gmail.com? Where does that email go? Um, that email probably goes to the assistant production office coordinator. Mm -hmm. It might go to one of the PAs in the production office. It might even go to the coordinator, but it's going to go into a file that might be put in front of a production manager or might be put in front of a producer. Um, it's a resource that those people are likely to pull upon if they need to hire local, um, talent who they don't know. But it'll be the second tier. It'll be the second place they go after utilizing whatever resources they might have access to through their own network or through the networks of people they know who have worked in that area before. That's good. So, but um, back to the question, is it, are, is it their best bet to if go out through a department head and like say they're an AD, they're going to contact the first AD or the second oh, AD? I see. Yeah, no, I would agree it's better to contact the head of the department that you'd like to work for mm-hmm. rather than sending something generic to the production office unless of course the production office is the place you'd like to work in which case that is exactly (laughs) the right place to send your resume um you know i think the the obstacle that exists for a lot of people is making that first connection or that first couple connections and once you do that and have proven yourself as a hard worker and as an intelligent person and as someone who has the disposition or the personality to work in the industry, you build a reputation. And that reputation and that word of mouth is what will get you jobs from that point on. The puzzle of how to get in is one that exists for each of us at the beginning. And obviously, hundreds of thousands of people have done it before you. (laughs) You will be able to do it too how it'll be done is different for each person. But if you keep going out and introducing yourself and telling everyone what you want to do and, you know, keep communicating that, then someone is going to know someone else who can eventually help you. Yeah. It's almost like the, the Kevin Bacon rule, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I worked with his daughter once, so I'm, I'm connected. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I would bet I have a connection at some point too, though I haven't tried to figure it out. <laughs> so um, talking about this idea of team and the all, all-star team that you're building, um, talk to us about um, this world of the ADs um, in terms of, you know, finding a first AD. Um, how do you go about doing that particularly because it's a specific choice a lot of times a director may be specific with with who they worked with in the past or, or somebody that you work for or a studio wants somebody that's so on a feature the director really gets to choose the first ad mm-hmm. 
on a television show um, because the ADs are going to be there throughout and the directors are going to rotate. It's really the producers that hire and then the um, directors are uh, basically assigned an AD to work with. How do you make that choice? How do you find the right person? I think it's a combination of um, what the needs of the show are going to be mm-hmm. and what the work methodology of different individuals might be along with their personalities. Um, it's also worth considering what the needs of your talent might be and what the specific sort of drives of the show are. So if you're working on a comedy, you would want someone who can roll with those changes that are going to happen on set that might come up as a result of ad-libbing, for example. If you're working on a show... Um, that has very intricate set pieces and a lot of visual effects, you might need somebody who you know is going to be very meticulous about their prep. Mm-hmm. If you're working on something that is a show that includes a all-female cast and um, is going to get into sensitive uh, scenes, you might want to make sure that you have an AD that's female so that the cast will be more comfortable the the aspects that affect that decision as you're looking for the right candidate can vary greatly depending upon all of those um all of those elements and ultimately it then becomes who is the best candidate that you can find taking those things into account sometimes it can feel like you have a wealth of choice and sometimes it can feel very much like you you're you're looking for the best person who's available in a very limited pool because there might be so much work in the area you're working in. I like how you broke it up in those categories. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, if somebody doesn't do a lot of stunts and VFX and then they're thrown into that world, it can be very difficult. Um, It can also be a wonderful opportunity for the person that really wants to learn that. Right. And, (laughs) And there have been times when I've sat in interviews with people and they've said, I know I'm not the ideal candidate for your job because I don't have experience with visual effects, for example, mm-hmm. or I don't have experience with, you know, young elephants, for example. But <laughs> I really want to learn that. I really want to become the young elephant expert. I want to know that world so well that when the next movie like this comes along, I'll be the natural call. And there's something, you know, where that enthusiasm might tip the scale because you know that they're going to give 110%. I know. uh, A long time ago, I got to coordinate a police car chase for this commercial. It was like a police um, division. And um, it was, I had so much fun doing that. I was like, I I could totally see myself doing stunts or like a Mission Impossible type movie because that's... I can see that too. I I think you'd be good at it. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Talking about, you mentioned interviews. I want to hear some ideas that you might have um, for people in that interview process. You know, you know, you may have been in interviews as well where they tell you 10 things about the job and then they don't ask you anything about yourself. Um, wh- what are some things you've learned over the years in terms of trying to create a really good environment for an interview? As the interviewer or as the, the interviewee? Well, maybe either. I don't know. But <laughs> f- first talk about the interviewer. Well, as an interviewer, I, I try to um, make sure that people feel comfortable and welcomed at the beginning of an interview. 
and certainly there are some times that people walk in and they're nervous and you can see that that might affect them and you you want to put them at their ease so that you can get a sense of how they would operate once they got to know you. So um, I always like to close the door when I'm conducting an interview so that they are not concerned that they're being overheard by people outside of the room. I like to make sure that I stand up, shake the person's hand, and then sit down, inviting them to sit down as well. Um, if there are other people that are going to be part of the decision-making process, I try to make sure that we meet the candidate together. Sometimes that's impossible, and so you end up doing it in stages. Um, but the idea that you want to give this person an opportunity to show you the way that they would operate makes sense to me. And by providing the sort of comfort level to allow them to do that, I find that you I get a more honest read. Mm -hmm. So as an interviewer, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is I I will start by trying to create a little bit of small talk, get to know them a little bit, mm -hmm. put them um, in a frame of mind where we're talking about something that's not work-related, and then segue the conversation into the work stuff and ask them specific questions about what they might do if they were part of the job. Um, though I suppose that does happen after I tell them a bit about the job. <laughs> um, and, and I try to make sure that I ask questions that are pertinent to the show but are also real interview questions because while I have tried to put them at their ease, it is an interview and I do want to get a sense of what their professional um, attitudes will be as well as their knowledge. Um, how many people do you typically like to interview for a certain position if you don't have any certain candidate you're voting for? I, I've never considered a, a number to be the magic number. Hmm. Um, I think it's a matter of interviewing enough people till you find someone that feels like the right candidate. And I guess my sense is that that can often take three or four people. And that three or four <coughs> are people who are usually coming to you through references or referrals. Yeah, or, or you know, sometimes I might have 10 people and I'm like, I don't time the interview all 10 people, but I can narrow it down to three or four that I can actually bring in to consider. Yeah, and if you if you have that that many potential candidates, then that's great. You can narrow them down on paper or you can narrow them down through the opinions of other people you trust before mm -hmm. you invest your time. Cool. So I want to move on to a couple other things um, in oh, the w Can oh. I can I drag you back for one yeah. second? Oh yeah, so we didn't talk about the interviewee part. Yes. <laughs> As an interviewee, I also find it important to do what I can to put the uh, person who might be interviewing me at ease because there are a lot of people who have not put thought into how to interview someone, and especially there are a lot of people in our industry who have never been trained to do that. As a result, I think that they will sometimes do exactly what you suggested earlier and talk a lot about the show and never ask you a question. So, one, as an interviewee, I try to put people at ease. Two, I try to make sure that I tell them the things that I think they need to know about what I would do for them. And three, and this is super important, and I've learned this through experience, make sure you say at the end of the interview, I would really like to do this job. I would really like to be part of your crew. I'd really like to 
go to the moon with you. I'd really like to, <laughs> you know, tackle that baby elephant, whatever it is that you're being considered for, because if you don't express an enthusiasm, then people may not know that you're interested, even if you feel it yourself. You actually have to say those words. Now, you're very managerial in your position. Somebody like a makeup artist may not be that experienced in the interview side. Do you ever get with them and try to give them some pointers and say, hey, I know we need to staff up. Here's what, What's your process? Most department heads have done it before, mm -hmm. and so they have a sense. And most of them have people they've worked with before, right. so they have a sense. Um, so I don't find myself doing that with other department heads. Okay. But I have found myself giving that kind of advice to people that I've hired after I've hired them. Mm -hmm. And said, I've even gone to people and said, I'm glad that you're here and that you know, you've done a great job on the show and I look forward to working together again, but because I don't have another job for you right away, I want to help you fix this resume because it needs help before you're going to get attention from it from someone else. That's good. Somebody once sent me a resume that was all black and I did not print it. <laughs> it had had white text, but I was like that's going to kill my printer. Yeah. And, can't, and can't people, consider them. people don't think about the effect that they're having with that introduction, whether it is when you walk into the room having the sunglasses on or whether it's sending the resume ahead that, you know, has their name surrounded by stars. You, you, you <laughs> Your first impression <laughs> is going to be important and it's going to be made through whatever that communication is. You want to you want to put a little attention into that. I want to talk about going back to we, at the beginning of our talk, we talked briefly about Better Call Saul, but I want to focus on that show for a few moments. Um, is there anything particular um, on that project? It's a very large project in Albuquerque, correct? No? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's certainly not the largest television show that I've worked on, but it is one of the better known, and it is a significantly sized show. And um, for for what it is, you know, it's it's st storytelling that is so detailed that people um, become very dedicated as viewers and as crew members. So, but it was well received. Um, wh what were some? Of the, I just would like to hear some of the challenges for a show in in that part of the world um, that's not Los Angeles. You know, it's it's in Albuquerque. Um, what were some of the things that you had to really wrestle with? Um, some problems that you had to solve. Albuquerque brings a couple of specific things. One is that there's a very high crime rate in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. So um, the way that you address security there is a little bit different than what you might do here in Los Angeles. Um, the way you choose locations or operate on location can become a factor. Um, for example, there was a night that we were shooting in Albuquerque and... Um, there were a group of protesters from City Hall who were making their way from City Hall to an unknown destination <laughs> that <laughs> was uh, getting closer and closer to our set. And when we heard that they were going to be passing by about a half block from our set, um, from the police officers, we were advised by them that we didn't want to draw their attention. So we ended up um, turning off all the lights, going inside the house we were shooting in and waiting for them to pass until, um, uh, that was at least the plan, right. until um, 
it turned out that like two blocks before they were going to get to us, they turned and went a different direction and we were able to continue shooting without any interruption. But, you know, because of the environment in that city, because of the fact that they, the police department is constantly understaffed because of the high crime rate, you know, you, you hire extra security people, you anticipate that there will be some cable that goes missing between shoot days at a location or two and um you you know you learn to anticipate and try to mitigate those things you don't leave cable outside of a location when you know you'll be returning on monday after shooting there on friday instead you wrap it saturday morning and put it all out again sunday night and the grips love you for that (laughs) or at least their families do (laughs) no i enjoyed that story um is there any other challenges you think of or you know, um, Albuquerque is the high desert, so in the winter it snows, or it can. Um, it gets bitterly cold, and so you find that you have to be prepared for that in terms of both the clothes that you wear and in terms of having the medical attention that the crew will need and the support they'll need, the hand warmers and whatever those little support devices might be. It gets really hot during the summer, so you have to be again, cognizant of that as you're getting ready to tromp out into the desert and make sure that the crew has both the uh, wind and eye protection they might need as well as craft service having the water and the support that they need, the manpower to supply and support the crew through those efforts. Um, The wind, there's nothing to stop the wind out there on the high plains. (laughs) So it becomes a factor and, and you see crew people who are, you know, running around in the middle of the day in the desert wearing goggles because it keeps the the dust from um, getting in their faces or in their eyes. And, you know, I'm, I suppose any of those kinds of things are just examples th- of what you deal with when you go on any specific location. I've been fortunate and been able to work in foreign countries as well as in, you know, a variety of different environments. And wherever you go, you you find that if you pay attention to what the local people are doing and how they're preparing and you try to do some of the same things, there's a reason they were doing those things. And are, are you like asking that local fixer like, hey, what should we think about, you know? or what, what Oh, absolutely. Should, right. Absolutely. When, when I was on a show called Tyrant that uh, shot in Israel and escalating tensions between the Israelis and um, the Palestinians caused us to pick up and move to... Turkey. We made that decision, um, I believe it was like on a, on a Tuesday, and we were shooting in Turkey um, three days later. And that was only possible because the local people in Turkey were both generous with their knowledge and um, with their time and welcomed us with open arms and told us how to facilitate it. You know, mm-hmm. you, we couldn't have done it in that kind of time scale any other way. When we think about this this world of um, TV, film, you know, starting at at the at the stage of of prep and pre production, um, you know, I, f- I find it's one of the most important things to do is is to create a re- really good system. Uh, w- is there anything that you, particularly that you like to do in in your office that you? Um, make things run smooth? Is there any technology you use? Any, um, the, the biggest thing is hiring people who know what they're doing. 
right. hiring people who are smarter than me, <laughs> hiring people who are are good at their jobs because they will make you look good and because um, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never worked in the production office. I've spent a couple days here and there trying to help people, but I don't have the experience or the knowledge to know what really has to be done. I need to make sure that I hire someone who has that and who can support that portion of the world that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I would say is hiring good people makes a world of difference or um, at the very least hiring people that know what they're doing. The second part of your question about specific technologies, I don't really have an answer for. I find that I keep uh, struggling to not become completely dependent on my old curmudgeonly ways. I still like to have a <laughs> physical copy of the call sheet in my pocket. Um, I you know, carry around a to-do list. Um, but the process is kind of dictated by whatever steps need to occur next to move the ball forward. And as someone might be listening to this podcast, they may or may not have the production experience to know what has to be done next um, to advance the show. That's the kind of knowledge that really only comes with experience. And even if you um, don't have that experience and want to engage the process, you will find that there's an answer because you're suddenly going to have someone asking you, hey, what about this? And what about that? And you're going to go, oh, we really do need a caterer. I better find one. <laughs> so, you know, y- you you get an experience uh, that leads you to how to predict what's going to happen in the future only through um, trial and error. And that's part of why, you know, people work in one job before they move up to another one. You get that experience by watching the people above you or by being part of the process. And um, that's invaluable. The systems that I might wish I had, the procedures that I might like to put on paper, all of those things feel like they would only be good for the show that I wrote them on and then they'd be, you know, out of date by the time I got to a different situation because instead of working in Albuquerque and out in the desert, I would find myself back here in Los Angeles on the studio lot shooting a completely different kind of show with a completely different crew and set of conditions. What you said earlier um, really resonated with me when you said it's what's next, right? It's trying to f- define the work of knowing what to do next because not everybody knows that instinctively. But like you said, if, if you've worked on enough shows that it comes naturally to you, like as far as when to do what, you right. know, uh, when when is it appropriate to find a cater? Is it the first week of prep or the 10th week of prep? Or and, <laughs> and ultimately the answer is there's no one answer. Right. right, because everything can be done in a variety of ways on a variety of timelines by a variety of personalities, and that's why this is, uh, you know, an exciting business rather than working on a factory floor. As I f- would find that to be hard for me if I was doing the same single task day after day, but you know, with that comes the um, process of having to learn to anticipate those things, and and you have to as a production person, give yourself permission to not know everything. And sometimes that means having to figure it out. And sometimes it means accepting that you're going to do a job that may not be your ultimate goal for a little while so that you can learn to do the next job. 
when you're um, in your position, you know, leading people, whether you're an AD or a UPM, um, you know, a lot of people will look look to you for guidance. H- have you had to read any? Have you read any books that are on leadership or um, management that you would recommend to people? There is one book that I do find myself sending to people as a gift, and it's called Crucial Conversations. I like it. It's um, it's not necessarily a leadership book, but it is a book um, that gives people techniques for having conversations that they are nervous about or that they've wanted to avoid. Um, it can be a skill set that's applied to having a conversation where you're asking for a raise or having a conversation where you have to admit something to someone in your personal life that you're nervous about. Um, it's a book that outlines in clear methodology a way to approach those conversations that I found very useful and that um, I think can help other people with production work specifically because so often at the intersection of creativity and practical concerns there can be um, conflict that doesn't need to be conflict if everyone understands or someone can point out in the middle of the conversation that we're all trying to achieve the same goal. Mm -hmm. The amount that creative people are invested in their product um, is incredibly high, as it should be. And the amount of money that's at stake for the companies that we're working for is also incredibly high. So the pressure can be very intense and people can sometimes not um, have the easiest time with those conversations because they become emotional. And having a tool set to deal with that is, I think, really helpful. I think, yeah, I I think that's something that I've seen a lot in the film world is, you know, people care so much about their particular part that it's it's hard to let go or, or hard to give in sometimes. Yeah, they're dedicated to not just the final product, but to doing the best work they can. And and with good reason, both because they want the the shot to be great and because they know that their reputation is based on the work that they've done up to that point. So it matters on a micro as well as a macro level, on an individual level as well as a societal one, if I can stretch the term as far as that. And once you're creatively invested and feel that you've put yourself out there or risked something, you um, you are naturally going to protect yourself. You're naturally going to protect that that creative effort. It's it's something that you see directors do, but it's also something you see department heads do, whether they're, you know, applying the makeup to someone's face or they chose that particular prop and designed that sp- that specific, you know, special effects gag. People do this work because they care and then they put a lot into it. I want to um, go back to this idea of team because we're jumping all over the place today, but that's okay. Um, You can edit this together in any order you want. I can edit it together um, with my filmmaking knowledge of Adobe (laughs) Premiere. Um, So we talked about this idea of building the team and and then this 
your resume is kind of scattered in the sense that you've done everything. You've worked as a second, first, UPM. Talk about your transition between one of those jobs and, and why did you make that transition? Was it easy? How did you do that? I've, I've transitioned from one AD position to another because I was ambitious and wanted to have more responsibility and wanted to have more authority and wanted to be closer to the creative process and wanted to be more helpful. Um, the opportunity to move from being a PA on commercials and infomercials up in Portland um, to getting into the training program was part of that. The opportunity to work as a key second after being a second second, you know, was driven by the same motivations um, as it has been with each of the steps subsequently. And how you create that opportunity, you know, varies from from situation to situation or from person to person. For me, um, moving from being a key, or rather moving from being a uh DJ trainee to a second second AD was a natural transition because you got out of the training program and you hung out your shingle and <laughs> people said, oh, you know, I have work on Tuesday. Come over here. Right. Um, the first opportunity that I got to be a key second after being a second second occurred when someone needed a key and they wanted to hire a key who hadn't been experienced, who was not someone who had a previous system of work or had a uh, um, entrenched way of working and so you know that was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time with the right connection mm -hmm. um, the transition from seconding to firsting was a little bit harder for me because um, I kept being I, I told people that I wanted to first I told everyone that I was working for that I was looking for that opportunity and um, while people were very supportive they also told me that they relied on me so much as a key that they didn't want to move me up or they didn't have the opportunity or they couldn't afford to or whatever version that dialogue took um, so I was on a TV show um, I was on without a trace as the second AD and um, between two of the seasons, both of the first ADs who were on the show were going to be leaving. Um, so one of them told the producers of the show that if uh, they didn't hire me as a first, that I probably would not return. And I think that that um, sort of opened the door and got them considering seriously the, uh, the possibility of moving me up. If... Uh, if that had not occurred, then I would have told them the same thing because <laughs> I would have felt that I had there had been a prime opportunity that had been, you know, that I'd been passed over for, and why would I, uh, why would I stay there? I didn't have, you know, if there was no upward mobility for me, then, um, then th I would look for other opportunities. And now, and the transition to being a UPM was that easy or it was not. And I'll tell you, the the big difference between transitioning from one AD position to another is that you see the work that the AD above you is doing. You get to watch them doing it on a day-by-day -day basis, and you have a clear understanding through that experience of what they do. Even if you don't know exactly how they do it, you get to know what they do and can expect mm -hmm. sort of how you would step into that role. 
um, as a production manager, I spend so much of my day bouncing from one situation and one group of people to another that um, there's no opportunity for an AD or for a production supervisor to necessarily follow along with all those steps. And the combination of not having had the chance to really understand what production managers I'd worked for did, along with the accounting skill set that's necessary, um, made it a more difficult transition than working from one AD position to another. Um, another producer who I have a great deal of respect for told me that any production manager, any first-time production manager needs to have three skills. One is they have to be good with people. The second is that they have to know the set. And the third is that they have to know the accounting. But nobody comes to the job with all three. So you have to find a candidate or find someone who's got the interest, who has two of those skills and is willing to learn the third. In my case, I knew the set, and I am good with people. So it was a matter of learning the accounting stuff, which was a very steep learning curve for me and, and something that I embraced because I hadn't done that before and it was going to be useful to me and because um, I felt invigorated by an opportunity to learn new stuff, but it made the transition harder. Is, yeah, because it's not like you're doing that as a second, you know, even though that's kind of the closest position to... Yeah, it's, it's a very different thing to try to learn to read a cost report than it is to... Um, sort of understand philosophically what the cost report does or, or what it's for. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to wrap up this um, podcast. I have a couple last questions. This last one is kind of more of a fun question, but I'd like to hear if there's any tools, you know, devices, gadgets that you like or use on your person. I'm a wonderlist addict. Wonderlist. Wonderlist is a to-do list that I've got on my phone that uh, syncs with my computer and which um, is somehow the, the way that I keep track of all the things that I have to do. You can create subcategories and you can you know, group them by show or by project or by um, thread that I find very useful. Um, do you share that with anybody in your team? You know, you can. I have not done that, um, maybe because I mix my personal lists with my work lists, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it certainly can Groceries. be done, and I know some people that do. Um, I find, though, that the simpler I keep my systems, the easier they are to use, the less they become the focal point. I, I was on a show that um, used Slack mm -hmm. as a communication tool, and as much as they're are things about that that are a little bit sexy. Um, it just felt like another thing that I had to check. It felt like another social media uh, intrusion. And the fe the fewer sort of encumbrances, the more I can focus on what's in front of me, the better. I think what I like about the Wonderlist app, it, it's like an app that you can open in your computer as well, right? Yes. And you don't have to be on the internet to use it, am I, if I'm correct. You don't have to, but once once your computer or your phone connects to the internet, then it'll update on all the other devices that you might be utilizing that to-do list on. Right, but if you're like on the plane, you can still look at it, which is handy. Yep. Um, any other gadgets that you 
fancy? You know, un- unfortunately, I, I don't think that there's a way to do these jobs anymore without a cell phone, a smartphone. Yeah. Um, the amount of texting and calling that's an everyday part of the process is staggering. Um, is so there are there any apps on your cell phone that you... Like? I like dark skies. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I tend to just, you know, go with the basic stuff. I, I want that physical call sheet in my pocket rather than... Um, you know, the electric version, because I can get it out of my pocket a lot faster than I can find it on my phone. Right. I think the dark sky is funny because it'll say, it's going to rain in 15 minutes, and then it's still not raining. <laughs> and you're like, right. it's failed me again. Right. The um, the thing that, like, I, I'm not against using new technology. I, I think that there are some very exciting things happening, especially with cameras in our worlds. But you want to use it when it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to try to use it for the sake of being technologically advanced. I, I think that we sometimes make our own lives more difficult. As an example, when I did my first call sheet, I did it on paper with a pencil, and I could change that call sheet faster than I could change it on the computer. And, you know, a few years later, I was faster on the computer than I would have been with the pencil. But, you know... When, you, when you're adopting something, you, you actually spend more time doing it until it becomes enough of a norm to make it more efficient. Makes sense. Um, last question is kind of open-ended. Anything like you'd like to share with the listeners that you thought about during this conversation? Yes. The answer is yes. Whenever anybody asks you a question, oh, that's good. the answer is yes. It may be that you don't know how to do whatever they've asked you to do, and so you can follow yes with just tell me how or as soon as you teach me how or as soon as I go talk to Billy and he tells me how. But when someone wants to hire you, when someone asks you to do something on set, when someone um, wants is considering whether or not to make you part of their team, having the positive attitude of yes makes a world of difference. And it's okay to say, I don't know how. If you say yes, and how do I do that, then someone will be invested in teaching you. If someone hears you say, no, I can't do that, then there's an immediate wall that is going to keep them from reaching out to you or teaching you. If someone hears you say, well, maybe they're already looking for the next person, the, the answer of yes is the thing that will carry you farthest regardless of what position you're in. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Seth, so much for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit us on iTunes, leave a review, and share with your network. You can also visit us online at assistantdirecting.com. Sign up for our e-newsletter to stay connected to what we're doing. Thanks, guys.